And here we are again with another Evening Under Lamplight podcast with Robert Louis Abrahamson and with you too. We're up to Canto 31 of Dante's Inferno, a transition canto, a little quiet space between the fetid ruin of the circle of fraud and the frozen hatred of treachery. Canto 30 ended with Dante being reprimanded by Virgil for paying too much attention to the mindless bickering of Sinon and Master Adam. This is the second time in two ditches that he's been too intent on the sinners below, and Virgil has to be a little more severe. But Dante is much more ashamed and immediately repentant, and Virgil is as quickly forgiving. This humiliating yet loving incident must still be rankling in Dante's mind, because he can't begin the 31st canto without bringing it up again, with the image of Achilles' lance, that mythic spear that can both wound you and Achilles, the greatest warrior in the Trojan War, never misses, and yet also it can heal the wound it created, either by touching the wound a second time, or, accounts seem to vary, by touching the wound with the blunt end. It becomes an image of an action that both pains and gratifies us. Maybe it's like getting an injection or digging into the skin with a needle to remove a splinter. Only, of course, on a much deeper level. In any case, an object that has the power to do two different things contrasts to these idiots we've just seen whose minds are fixed on only one thing, and that thing usually some kind of malice. Never mind, Dante and Virgil are moving on, quietly this time, climbing out of the ditches region, now walking across a flat area, where everything is dark and indistinct. This makes for interesting storytelling, but it also arouses our curiosity. What's next? Dante is expectant too. Suddenly Dante is startled by an exceedingly loud horn blasting from somewhere out there in the dark. It doesn't take too long before Dante is close enough to make out what lies ahead. Well, sort of make it out. Is that a city of some sort up ahead, he asks Virgil. Don't try to make sense of what you're too far away to perceive properly, Virgil chides. Instead of trying to guess, just push yourself to walk closer and see. But feeling that he might be a little too harsh, and remembering his forgiveness a short while ago, and perhaps also aware of how much Dante has gone through, and how tired and anxious he must be, Virgil relents and explains it's not a city up there, but enormous giants, as though that's more comforting. There's a deep pit ahead, and the giants are standing on the edge of the pit, visible from the waist up. Oh yes, now Dante can see that those forms are giants after all, but that just turns his mistake into fear. Thank goodness that nature has stopped making giants like this, who combine the human capacity of thought with ill will and brute strength. Not like, say, elephants or whales, which have strength, but no malice. He describes the enormous height of the giant, which we can calculate rose 35 feet up in the air. That's over 10 meters for those who speak that language. This giant shouts out a series of nonsense words, gibberish, it's the best he can do. Virgil calls up disdainfully that this giant should stop trying to use language. If you have some passion you need to express, blow your horn instead. Yes, there it is, stupid, hanging right around your neck. That's Nimrod, Virgil explains to Dante, the one who devised that Tower of Babel, which resulted in the world not speaking a single language. Now he can't understand any language. 
And that's it. They move on around the circle and now come across an even larger giant, much more fierce and frightening. Luckily, someone has confined him with iron chains from his neck down, winding five times around his body, at least the part Dante can see, tying his left arm in front, his right arm behind. Virgil explains that this is Iphialtes, one of the giants who attacked Jupiter on Mount Olympus. Those powerful arms he fought with are impotent now. Dante makes a request. While they're touring this round of famous giants, he'd like to see Briarius. But no, this is an unusual example of a time when Virgil denies one of Dante's requests. He's too far ahead. We're not going that far. We'll be seeing Antaeus instead, who's the next giant from here. He's friendlier and has some intelligence, and he's not chained up like this one. He'll transport us down to the next level. There's nothing special to see about Briarius. He looks like this one here and is chained up like him, but he's much more fierce looking, that's all. At this, Ephialtes, enraged perhaps that someone looks fiercer than he does, starts shaking in anger like some kind of earthquake shaking a tower. Dante is really afraid he's going to be killed until he reassures himself that those chains are good and strong and will continue to hold him fast. And so they move on and come up to Antaeus. Virgil makes a formal request that the giant should carry them down to the lower level. Antaeus says nothing, but immediately reaches out and takes Virgil in the palm of his hand. Okay, Virgil says to Dante, come on over, let me hold you here. And so, with much trepidation, Dante climbs aboard the giant hand, and Antaeus bends over as he lowers them down and places them on the ground below. A dizzying and frightening experience for Dante. And then immediately he straightens up. And there they are, down at the bottom of hell, with Lucifer and Judas and the other traitors. Nothing more to say at this point. The canto is over. The canto is opened with the image of Achilles' double-functioned spear, reinforcing our sense of Virgil's all-encompassing protection. It ends with Virgil enfolding Dante in his arms as they ride down on Antaeus's hand. In between, we have the approach to the giants, with the frightening sound of the horn, and the mistake about the giants being city towers. And then we encounter three giants, each with different characteristics, and there is the mention of a fourth, which we teasingly do not get to see. And then we're taken below, moving on from these giants. The canto serves as a transition from Circle 8 to Circle 9. After all the turmoil we've just been through, it's relatively calm. It's almost as if Virgil is taking Dante through a museum, with these giants on display. But one of them is so threatening that you almost think it's going to kill you before you remember that it can't. Dante, Dante's like the little kid you bring to the museum. Daddy, can we see the Briarius exhibition? No, we can't. There isn't time to see everything. Come on over here. There's no real communication with these giants on display. Nimrod speaks, but it can scarcely be called communication. And Virgil speaks back to him, but it's doubtful the giant can even understand what Virgil is saying. He can't even comprehend that he has that horn around his neck. Just go back to blowing that loud horn. All this empty-headed creature can do is make noise. There's some sort of communication with Antaeus, since he hears what Virgil says and does his bidding, but he speaks no words. He's mechanical like most of the other functionaries we've seen here. Now, altogether, 
We must imagine this as a dark, eerie place, a frightening place, empty of everything except those giant forms. Dante at first mistook it for a city. Well, indeed, it's some, like some kind of post-apocalyptic cityscape. The only sounds come from that horn at the beginning, the nonsense words Nimrod spits out, and the rattling of chains. Should we imagine that these sounds produce any echoing noises? Well, I think there's nothing for the sound to echo against, and that makes it perhaps even more spooky. Nimrod's horn calls up a comparison with the Song of Roland, one of the great medieval epics. Roland was leading the rear guard of Charlemagne's army on a march out of Spain. They were betrayed by Ganelon and then attacked by the Saracens and wiped out. Roland blew his legendary horn, and even though Charlemagne was miles ahead, he heard it and came back, but arrived too late. That whole story is condensed into three lines, but it adds another dimension to what's going on. Besides previewing the world of betrayal which we're about to enter, it can remind us that, although Nimrod was famous as a hunter, and this would be a hunter's horn, nevertheless it serves here as a military instrument. The horn alerts others that there's an enemy approaching. This can remind us of the incident way back in Canto Eight, when Dante and Virgil were crossing the River Styx, transitioning from the region of incontinence to the inner city of violence and malice. You'll recall that there was a warning light kindled high up in the tower, with another light in a tower on the other side of the river, a signal for the ferryman, but also an alert that an enemy is approaching. Thus, the horn here connects us back to a previous transition between regions back there. Now, if we're invited to compare the situation with the giants to the situation of Roland and his horn, we, we can identify Nimrod as a kind of insane version of Roland. But who plays the role of Ganelon, the traitor? Well, that's probably Antaeus, who helps them move deeper down into the territory. I said just before that this should feel very spooky, like some sort of horror film, but it might also feel like a spy story, our two heroes making their way into enemy land, facing potential hostility at every step. Dante makes mistakes, as he does in thinking the giants are towers, and the mistake is cleared up only to bring him to greater fear. It's much worse down here than he'd ever expected. But we know our heroes travel with a divine passport, which enables us to dispense with any fears for their lives. Our task, like Dante's, is just to observe what's there, ponder its significance, and let it work to heal us. We might want to consider Dante's mistake about the giants being towers. They look like the towers of Monteregioni, a fortress with fourteen towers, each over sixty feet high. So here's yet another page in Dante's great travelogue of Italy itself. But there's something else. Monte Regioni was a Sienese outpost, and so here is Dante's Florentine anti-Siena prejudice leaking over from the sowers of discord pit. Imagine thinking the very depths of hell make you think of one of your neighbor's places. Now a few words about each of these giants. Nimrod was associated with the Tower of Babel, that impious building that attempted to reach up to God in heaven, but which resulted only in the common language of humanity being split into the various different languages as we have it now. 
In other words, it can represent the very setup that causes misunderstanding. It's not just differences between, say, Latin and Greek, or French and Mandarin, but also the differences between local dialects and accents, resulting in yet more confusion in our world, more breakup of community bonds. Dante, as a man of words, was acutely aware of this, aware, too, of his daring choice to write a major poem not in the universal European language of Latin, but in the local Florentine version of Italian. We still have the good of our intellect, you and I, and can make sense of the poem, even though translations and the passage of 700 years can easily lead to errors. But we're not like Nimrod here, having lost our intellect and just left with our own private language of no good to anyone. We can do a lot more than just blow our own horn. Why is Ephialtes here? If Nimrod shows us just dumb stupidity, Ephialtes shows us this stupidity combined with brute strength and malice. Ephialtes was one of the giants who attacked Jupiter. He betrayed his rightful ruler. He's not so much damned here as just confined, but he serves to remind us of the worst forces of evil which we are about to see examples of below here. Dante wants to get a look at Briarius. Well, who wouldn't? He's described in Virgil's Aeneid as having a hundred arms and hands, breathing fire from fifty mouths and breasts. Maybe Virgil wants to avoid taking Dante to see him because he suspects it will show that Briarius was just another giant, not the fantastic monster he described him as. Or maybe Dante the writer wants to avoid having to decide how to describe him. It's better to leave it up to our own imagination. And finally, Antaeus, the son of Mother Earth, who fought with Hercules and was defeated only because Hercules lifted him up off the earth, which had been giving him strength, and thus was able to crush him to death. But it's to Antaeus's credit that he was not one of the giants or titans who attacked Jupiter in the great battles. You couldn't call him a friendly giant, but at least he's not a hostile one. He seems to curl his lips when Virgil speaks to him, but he does what he's asked to do efficiently and without fuss. One of the ways Virgil persuades him to give them a lift is by promising that Dante can make him famous back in the living world. It's like Dante is paying for his journey with this very poem. These lines depicting Antaeus helping them move to the next circle is the very payment for his helping them move to the next circle. And so as we, as we read these lines and think about this character, we are, in a way, fulfilling the payment. Our thoughts about him right now are keeping his fame alive, even now, as if it really matters to him. When Dante and Virgil moved from the region of violence to malice, they were carried through the air on the back of Geryon. Now, in this next major transition, they're also carried through the air, but in a more precarious way, on the palm of Antaeus's hand. If Dante was able before to prefigure what it was like to circle around as an aeroplane comes into land, so now he prefigures what it would be like to descend in one of those lifts on the outside of buildings so that it feels like we're just going down in mid-air. How long does this journey down take? We don't know. We've calculated that it's probably 35 feet down, but we don't know what speed, nor do we really need to know these things. Let's restrain our curiosity. 
When they boarded Geryon, Virgil sat behind Dante, but now he holds him close to him, making one bundle, as the poem puts it. There's greater need for them to stick close together here. The journey is described with two similes. When Antaeus bends down towards the ground to put them down, it's like, Dante says, when you look up at the Tower of Garisenda, a leaning tower in Bologna, and the passing clouds behind the building give the illusion that the tower is bending over even further. The effect is to have us recreate in our imagination that sense of vertigo we can feel when looking up at this kind of optical illusion. It's a different image at the end, when Antaeus stands up again, like the mast of a ship being raised once the ship has cleared the harbour and is setting out to sea. Their ship has gone now, there's no way back, and well may Dante have these two similes confirming that he's looking up. Let him say farewell to all those varied and awful regions above. He's now at the bottom, coming near to the end of this infernal part of his journey. But it's not quite over yet. We have one more circle to traverse, and some of the most complex and disturbing encounters yet. We'll start on this in the next podcast. See you there.